Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. As I said, we're going to conclude our study of 2 Timothy today. And um, please understand that um, in these studies, I've not said, and indeed, even by the end of today, I will not have said all that could, or indeed all that should have been said regarding this letter. But my hope and my prayer is that what I have said will in some way have encouraged you to dig deeper and seek the Lord for greater understanding. So before we begin, let's, let's, just, um, let's just have a brief reminder of what we've learned so far. This letter was Paul's last letter. It was written from prison in Rome to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it was charging him with the awesome responsibility of dealing with extremely serious and damaging issues that had arisen within the church as a consequence of false teaching. We've discovered that Paul has reached the end of his life and he writes to pass on the responsibility of leadership, the responsibility of preserving the truth of the gospel message that for 30 years he has borne and he's now passing that responsibility on to Timothy. And Paul does so by reminding Timothy as to how over the course of his life, God has prepared him for this task. He reminds him that from childhood he has been faithfully taught the Holy Scriptures. These are the Holy Scriptures that were given by the inspiration of God that are able to make us wise unto salvation. Timothy is reminded of how for the past 20 years or so that he's lived and worked alongside Paul. He's witnessed firsthand how to put into practice the faith he professes. And most importantly, Paul reminds Timothy of how God has put his spirit into his heart. And that Timothy himself needs to stir up that gift which God has graciously given him through the laying on of Paul's hands. Paul has stressed the importance to Timothy that his inner attitudes and outward conduct should confirm the message that he preaches and not contradict it. He tells Timothy to endure hardship like a soldier, compete according to the rules like an athlete, and work with, due dil- with the due diligence of a farmer. He instructs him to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness, to stand firm on the truth, to avoid po- pointless arguments, but instead to reason with his enemies. They are the false teachers that we've mentioned and their followers. And to do so with gentleness and patience and having an earnest desire that God grants them repentance and that they come to a knowledge of the truth. So with that in mind, let's just read through 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfil your ministry, 
for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Yes, Lord, thank you. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Antichicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left at Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defence, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet Pris Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onifisurus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Wow, indeed. Now, Paul begins chapter 4 using the language of the courtroom, issuing Timothy with a solemn charge to preach the word. And it's likely that the courtroom was very much on Paul's mind, since he had recently, as we read in the just read in the chapter, he'd been on trial himself before an earthly judge, no doubt having to answer unjust charges brought against him. The exact outcome of this trial is a little difficult to determine. See, in verse 6, Paul states that the time of his departure is at hand, which suggests that he may well have been given the death sentence. However, in verse 17, it says that he was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. I think that's a reference to Daniel being delivered out of the mouth of the lion. In other words, he's been delivered from great danger. And so there appears to be a little bit of a contradiction there. Now, my guess is, I mean, Paul mentions that this was his first defence. And my guess is that Paul, at that first defence, received a temporary reprieve. It still required him to remain in custody. But I think Paul knew, maybe God had revealed it to him, that at a later hearing that this, this reprieve may well have been reversed. What we do know is that Paul realised he had a little, only a little time left, which is why he urged Timothy to hurry to him and to make every effort to get there before winter. You see, travelling across the Mediterranean in those days wasn't possible during winter. 
And, and if Timothy was unable to do so, he may never have got to see Paul again. And whether he did or not, we don't know. Now the charge which, with, with which Paul addresses Timothy is a just charge. And it's the just charge before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember back to chapter 2, Paul exhorted Timothy to remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. And Paul now makes clear the importance of these two truths. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead means that he is still alive and will one day physically return to this world. Now the Bible gives many reasons why he will do so, but Paul here just mentions two. To establish his kingdom and to judge the living and the dead. Now as the seed of David, Jesus will establish his kingdom. The Bible teaches that he will rule with a rod of iron from Jerusalem, bringing righteousness and peace to this world for a thousand years. But he's also coming for the purpose of judgment. He's coming to put things right and to set the record straight. And this is good news. When you think about it, it means that the perpetrators of every unsolved crime will face justice. Those who are responsible for the brutal beheadings in the Middle East will one day stand before Jesus. In this country, every year, many guilty people go away unpunished. Either, way, either they don't make it into court or they walk away from court. Free. These are thieves, rapists and murderers. The good news is that they didn't get away with it. They may not face justice in this life, and even if they die, they will not escape because the dead will be raised to life. It says that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Now as human beings, all of us have an in inherent desire to see justice done. And even members of the most vicious gangs face severe punishment when they don't strictly adhere to the rules. And those leaders of those gangs will feel justified in doing so. Now just to give a trivial example of how we all have this sense of injustice, and I don't say this way of judging, um, I think I've been guilty of this too many times myself in the past, but uh, this, this kind of inherent sense of justice, have you ever sat in a football crowd and listened to the reaction when the referee gets a decision wrong? <laughs> People are absolutely incensed at the injustice. I think also this reveals something else about the human sense of justice because we're all for it when it works in our favour. <laughs> in fact, we insist upon it when it applies to somebody else. However, when it applies to us, we're not quite so sure. Now, only God is able to, rightly, uh, to, to, to judge rightly, which is why God the Father has appointed Jesus to do this since Jesus is fully man and fully God. Paul says elsewhere that he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And Jesus is the only man who is qualified to do this. See, only God is fully aware of all the evidence. Only God is fully acquainted with all the facts. From him no secrets are hidden. Now the Gospel accounts state many times how Jesus was able to perceive the thoughts and intents in the hearts of men. And he's still able to do so today. For Jesus himself said, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. 
Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have spoken in the ear of inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. So by what standard will we be judged? Paul makes clear in Romans 2 that it will be according to the light we have received. And even if God merely judged us by the standards we expect in others, yet the evidence would overwhelmingly condemn us. See, which of us can honestly say that we've always done what we've known to be right, or we've not done what we've known to be wrong? See, the sorry conclusion in both the Old and New Testament is it's absolutely no one. Quoting the Psalms, Paul states, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none that does good. No, not one. And to this, Paul had his own uh, uh, conclusion to this sorry indictment on humanity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So on the day of judgment, the only verdict can be guilty as charged. Yet there is one hope, and it's this, that our names have been written in a book. It's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And how can we know that our name is there? Well, by repenting of sin and fully putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus upon the cross and his death and resurrection. See, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth's not in us. Yet if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Paul knew more than most that he was very much part of the all who have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet because he believed this gospel, and he believed this gospel to the extent that this gospel message, he dedicated his life in proclaiming it. And at the end of his life, he could now face death with confidence, knowing that a crown of righteousness awaited not only him, but all who have loved Jesus appearing. And that's why all true Christians long for and look forward to the second coming. See, true Christians who love and obey Christ will heed the instructions that he gave so that we are ready for his return. In his Gospel account, Matthew records Jesus' teaching about how to be ready for his return. And one of the parables he uses is the parable of the faithful servant. Jesus said, Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season. Blessed is the servant, whom when the master comes is found so doing. And if you read that parable, which is in Matthew 24, um, you can check this out when you look at the notes later. Um, Jesus then goes on to describe an evil servant who neglects his responsibility of managing the master's house while he's away and how he's unprepared for his return. Now why bring that up? Well, throughout the whole of uh, 2 Timothy, Paul has been describing these two servants. See, Timothy exhorted, Timothy is exhorted to be like the faithful servant, diligently, ma uh, dil diligently managing the master's house, giving them food in season by faithfully preaching the word until the master returns. The false teachers, by contrast, whom he described as being lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, 
are like the evil servant living under the intoxicating influence of Satan. See, their errant teachings have led to the breakdown of relationships within the family, disharmony within the body in general, and like the evil servant, they are failing in their duty to properly manage the master's house and be found completely unprepared upon his return. So Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, the scriptures, and to do so in season and out of season. Now, I'll say a little bit more about in-season and out-season later, but just for the moment, I'm going to take in-season to mean when a society has been open to the Word of God, and out-of-season when it's not been open to the Gospel being preached. Now, I think it's fair to say that for, as we look back, for the most of the past 170 years or so in this country, we could regard it as an in-season. See, if we look at some statistics, back in the year 1900, over 90% 90 of people would have attended church. The Bible, to a limited extent, was accepted. It was taught in schools, and some of the hymns that we sang this morning, I remember <coughs> singing them in school myself. And even among unbelievers, Christianity and biblical principles were generally regarded as good for society, and therefore held a degree of respect. Therefore, that was a relative, there was relative freedom in preaching the gospel and preaching the word in general. However, in recent times, we've been steadily moving into one of those out-of-season periods when people who hold to biblical truth are increasingly becoming regarded as narrow-minded bigots trying to impose an unwelcome morality upon society. Now, like Timothy, we too are being charged with the responsibility to manage the master's house until he returns. And we're to do so by preaching the word. Now Paul was charging Timothy with the responsibility of leadership. And therefore he also had the responsibility of preaching. Now we may not be called to this specific role. However we all have the responsibility of ensuring that preaching of the word is made possible. And many people in this church work very hard behind the scenes so that the word can be preached. See, we may not all be called to stand at the front and deliver sermons. Paul highlights three aspects that should feature when the word is preached. It should convince, rebuke and exhort. Now all of, this can, all of us can share in this to some degree. I mean, Tom has spoken about the importance of fellowship this morning. And we are continually encouraged to belong to and participate in the midweek fellowship groups. Usually we're sent the sermon notes at least 48 hours in advance of these meetings so we can study them, we can analyse them, we can write down questions and make a note of other issues that we can raise in discussion at these meetings. So in this forum we can all share in that responsibility of convincing, rebuking and exhorting. Now, who, who, is, the, who, who is being preached to? Now, from the context of verses 3 and 4, we can discern that Paul in, Paul's intended audience is the church. See, in verse 4, Paul talks about people turning away from the truth. He was therefore not referring to those outside the body, since the world at large wasn't listening to the truth in the first place. Let's have a look at these three words in a bit more detail. Now, to convince, and some Bibles it will, it will use the word reprove. I think in the NIV it says correct. 
And this convincing or reproving or correcting is primarily an appeal to our minds. It means to prove by reasoned argument, to think, to consider the, ev to consider the evidence and reach a decision. Therefore, what we preach must make sense. It must be logical. To preach the word of God is to teach the truth in all matters, and that includes science. See, a lot of people that will say that the Bible teaches moral and spiritual truth, and science preaches, uh, teaches another kind of truth. The Bible exhorts us to prove all things. And as creation scientist John McKay often says, there are many scientific theories that disagree with the Bible, but the facts never do. Faithful preaching of the word will also rebuke those who fall into sin. When we become Christians, we don't instantly become perfect. As we read earlier, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. A few weeks ago, we were very privileged to have Verna Oda among us. Sorry, Verna Oda among us. And he explained to us that growing into Christian maturity is often a long, slow and painful process. When we become Christians, we're adopted into God's family. Families are loving environments. However, I think we all know by experience that members of families from time to time do experience tensions. We have disagreements that need to be resolved. And it's in families where we learn to admit that sometimes we're in the wrong and that we need to learn to humble ourselves and seek forgiveness. And when we are wronged, we need to learn to be forgiving. So to hold the family together, therefore, there has to be right and effective use of discipline. And in families, that's the responsibility of father. In churches, it lies with the elders. And leaders of churches who neglect this discipline will, as Paul states, see members of their churches turning away from the truth. The third feature Paul mentions is to exhort, or in some Bibles it's translated encourage, which means preaching should also appeal to the heart as well as the mind. On several occasions Paul exhorts Timothy to endure hardship and warns him of perilous times to come. Now as Christians we do go through times when our spirits are low and we feel discouraged, such as when we experience opposition and persecution. Maybe when we go through illness, either in ourselves or those who we love, those closest to us. At times we, we get overtired and then find we cannot rest. Sound preaching the word therefore will lift our spirits. It will comfort, that is it will put strength into us. See we serve a living saviour who will not break a bruised reed. That is, he will not break those battered and bruised by the external pressures of life. And neither will he quench the smoking flax. Those who are exhausted emotionally and physically, what we now call being burned out. Patient preaching of the truth will inspire and revive us. Paul then goes on to point out that a time is coming when people will no longer be willing to listen to sound doctrine. Instead, they will turn away from the truth in order to listen to myths and fables. Now there are many myths and fables being taught in churches today and there's no shortages of, pe of teachers willing to teach them. However, I do believe that the biggest and most damaging myth being taught in churches, I'm not really concerned about outside, I'm, I'm concerned about churches, is the lie that through millions of years of death, disease and decay that pond scum can turn into people. 
See, many... <laughs> through millions of years of death, disease and decay, pond scum can turn into people. See, many churches have abandoned the book of Genesis as historical fact and have reduced it to myth and fable, regarding it as stories written to illustrate moral truths and denying that the events it describes really happened. People who profess to be Christians have come to regard Adam and Noah as merely mythical characters. However, there's a bit of a problem. You see, if you just quickly turn to Luke chapter 3... You'll find in Luke chapter 3 a genealogy of Jesus. And you'll find Jesus at the start of the list. And then just before you get to the end of the list, you'll find the name of Noah. And right at the very end of the list, you'll find the name of Adam. So I want to know at what point did the real people who were Jesus' ancestors turn into mythical characters? <laughs> The consequences of turning away from believing that God is our creator are clearly spelled out in Romans chapter 1. Now, we haven't got time to look at that now, but I recommend that as you do go through the notes, that you actually study Romans chapter 1 and ask yourself this question. Does this describe what's increasingly happening within our churches today? Not just in the congregations, but even among the leadership. Returning to 2 Timothy, verse 5, it begins, but you. And that always introduced a contrast. And all the way through this letter, Paul has contrasted the right way for Timothy to fulfil his ministry. And he's compared them to the destructive teachings and the consequent immoral conduct of the false teachers. Timothy, uh, he tells Timothy to be watchful in all things. Now you'll find in some translations, uh, you may have in front of you, it says to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded is to be clear-thinking and willing to face up to reality. Now in contrast, the false teachers were intoxicated by the devil, and therefore they were out of touch with reality and needing to come to their senses. Paul adds that Timothy is to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfil his ministry. For in so doing, Timothy would be like the faithful servant taking care of the master's house. In contrast, the false teachers were failing to fulfil their ministries and would no doubt run away from enduring afflictions. Now just returning to that parable for a moment, in that parable Jesus described the conduct of the evil servant who was unready for the master's return, he says they were beating their fellow servants and eating and drinking with drunkards. Now these false teachers may not have been literally physically attacking their followers, but their teachings were certainly inflicting considerable harm. And the reference to eating and drinking with drunkards confirms that they were indeed detached from reality and out of their senses. Now, having stated that he expects to die soon, Paul then makes an urgent call uh, to, Timothy, to Timothy to hasten his visit to him. Now, this all may seem a little odd, given that all that Paul has said in this letter, uh, reminding Timothy of his responsibilities to the Ephesian church. Now, Paul clearly does not expect Timothy to simply drop everything. He instead 
he's made adequate provision. It tells us that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus, one of Paul's apostolic delegates who would continue the work in Timothy's absence. Now, as we read this request, we can see something of the humanity of Paul. Uh, Paul reveals that he's not so super spiritual, that he does not have the same basic human needs that we all have. Friendship, adequate warm clothing for the cold winter months, and books to stimulate his mind, providing some relief from the inevitable um, boredom that comes with the imposed isolation of imprisonment. Paul deeply feels the absence of close companions and the fellowship that he shared with them. And if Paul needed them, so do we. He mentions some by name, some like Demas, who appear to have fallen away, whereas others like Titus are away on legitimate business. And yet Paul, he feels a sense of abandonment. Now, I think there's a profound lesson in, in what Paul says. You see, Paul is not content with the personal audience of just one gospel writer, Luke. He wants Mark there with him as well. Now, Paul instructs Timothy to bring with him the cloak, the books and the parchments he left at Troas. And this seems to indicate that Paul was arrested at Troas and brought to Rome without having time to gather his belongings. And we see that Paul has, seems to have very few belongings. He also warns Timothy to, beware, to be wary of Alexander the coppersmith. Now much has been written speculating as to who exactly this character was. People have asked the question, was he the same Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy or in Acts 19 and 20? I'm not going to go into that there, but just sticking strictly to what uh, we read in the passage... I think it's fair to suggest that Alexander probably had attended some of the Christian gatherings led by Paul. He said in order to have greatly resisted Paul's teaching, he would have needed to know what it was. Now one thing we can take from Paul mentioning this character is that as Christians, we need to avoid needlessly putting ourselves in harm's way. See, there are people who are just out to make trouble for us, and they're not always people outside the church. And it's true to say that even in our short existence as a fellowship, that not everyone who's walked through those doors at the back has come in with a genuine desire to bless and encourage us in serving the Lord here in Yateley. Now notice Paul does not instruct Timothy to confront him, but rather to try, if possible, to avoid him, leaving him to be dealt with by the Lord. And such people we need to be aware of, and where possible keep our distance from them and trust the Lord to deal with them. However, we also need careful discernment because sometimes danger is inevitable when living the Christian life and we must face our responsibilities as Christians even when trouble comes. And history tells us that there have been many who have laid down their lives when serving the Lord. And there seems to be a fine line between wrongly putting ourselves in harm's way and failing to carry out our reasonable service for fear of danger and it therefore requires careful discernment that only comes from a close walk with the Lord. A little earlier on I mentioned about preaching the word in season and out season and suggesting that these times um, are to do with how society responds to uh, the, the, the preaching of the word and that we, we've seen throughout history that um, 
there have been in-seasons and out-seasons. They've waxed and waned throughout history. And if we think of today, they do vary according to geographical location. There is just some areas of the world where it's very, very difficult to, to preach the word. However, I believe that uh, this, this term in-season and out-season can also apply to us personally. In verses 16 to 18, Paul describes such a personal out-of-season occasion. See, Paul is lonely. He feels abandoned. And we read that he's on trial for his life. If ever there was such a thing as a personal out-of-season, this was it. And yet he said the Lord stood with him and strengthened him through this trial. And when he was called upon to uh, give evidence to make his defence, to give testimony before the judge, Paul realised he had a captive audience and he took the opportunity to preach the gospel to many Gentiles who who otherwise may never have heard it. Now one of the privileges of being part of this church is that I believe that there are people here who do preach the word out of season. You see, on more than one occasion there has been testimony of people who have been receiving treatment or undergoing assessments in hospital and no doubt with a great deal of concern for their own health and yet they've not neglected the opportunity when it's arisen to preach the word and to tell people about Jesus. In the final few verses Paul mentions many people that Timothy is to greet or receive greeting from. Now without going through each in turn I just want to mention one that's Trophimus, who was left ill at Miletus. Now Trophimus was one of a number of men who faithfully served the Lord by accompanying Paul on his missions. He was a Gentile, he was from Ephesus. In fact, he was the Gentile whom Paul took into the temple at Jerusalem, which led to his first arrest many years earlier. And even though he was a faithful servant, notice it did not exempt him from illness. And he did not receive instant miraculous healing. It's not just Trophimus. There's another character, Epaphroditus, that we read of in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And he was healed by the Lord, but it wasn't an instant healing. In fact, Paul suffered much anguish because Epaphroditus nearly died. Now, we need to keep that in mind because there were occasions where the Lord did grant Paul the ability to heal people. He healed a crippled man in Lystra. You can read about it in Acts chapter 14. But this was done at the Lord's initiative, not Paul's. And this reminds us that it's for the Lord to grant healing. And I believe that it's right for us to pray and that he indeed does so still today. However, if we're not healed or do not receive instant miraculous healing, it does not mean that we lack faith, as some teach, causing a great deal of harm and distress. Now, in closing, I just want to say that uh, when writing the last few talks that I've given, I felt the need to give them a title. And the title I've given to this one refers to one of Paul's statements that I haven't yet mentioned. Just returning back to verse 6, Paul says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So my title for this talk, when you receive the notes, is Poured Out Like a Drink Offering. As yet, I'm still a little bit undecided whether to leave it as a statement or to add a question mark. 
See, I want to invite the question, if it's Paul's testimony that he's poured out like a drink offering, can we say the same? So what does Paul mean by this statement? From what he goes on to say, it's clear that Paul means that he's given everything in fulfilling his ministry since he first met Christ. He says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And like a drink offering poured out, leaving the vessel empty, Paul has given his all in the service of Christ. Now, I did a little bit of research in uh, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, and I found that drink offerings were made along with grain offerings. And these offerings were made on many occasions, for instance, when priests were consecrated for service, the total giving of oneself. They're also given during the feasts of first fruits, the feasts of weeks. These were feasts that were given at the beginning and the end of the spring harvest. They were also given at the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs at the end of the summer harvest. Now these offerings were given as God's appointed means for the people to give thanks for his provision for them. They were therefore given out of an expression of gratitude. So at the end of his days, when Paul describes his life as being poured out like a drink offering, he's saying that he's totally given his life in service to God as an expression of thanksgiving to the Lord who has graciously saved him and has amply provided for him throughout his life and ministry. Is that our testimony? Are our lives being poured out like a drink offering? Are we totally giving ourselves into his service as an expression of thanksgiving to the God who sent his only begotten son to die so that we might be saved? Are we giving our all to our heavenly father who so graciously provides for us in abundance? And my prayer is that this will be true for all who belong to this fellowship. Paul concludes this wonderful letter with a blessing. And as I close this study, I'll do the same. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen.